Hello, and thank you for joining me for another episode of Humankind Podcast for Leaders. Today, I'm joined by Jen Shirkani, whom I had the pleasure of meeting several years ago, and I've had the opportunity to hear her speak at multiple conferences. Jen is a published author, business leader, and nationally recognized emotional intelligence expert. And she can often be found as a keynote speaker at national and state conferences, universities, government agencies, and business organizations throughout the world. Her books, Ego versus EQ and Choose Resilience are staples on my bookshelf, and I encourage you to check them out whenever you can. I was fortunate to have a fascinating conversation with Jen about accountability and empathy and ways that leaders can empower those around them and the magical event that unfolds when you're able to lead with emotional intelligence. I hope that you'll enjoy our conversation. And here's Jen Shirkani. Well, thank you, Jen, for taking the time to join us on Humankind for Leaders. I'm really excited to connect with you again and talk about uh, emotional intelligence and, and the impact that that has on kindness and empathy in the workplace. Of course, you and I met, I guess, two, three years ago, it seems like now, in a couple of different places uh, where you spoke at the Civitas Annual Conference and had a chance to read uh, your books. Uh, Choose Resilience and uh, Ego versus EQ, which uh, was a great refresher for me over this past weekend. So I know you'll have a lot to contribute to this conversation. But I want to dive right in and ask the first question of, you know, your thoughts on kindness and empathy and how that fits into the broader conversation of EQ. Sure. So emotional intelligence is three broad composites, right? So it's recognizing yourself, knowing who you are. So it's high self-awareness. The second part is reading others and understanding what they're trying to communicate with you. And that's where the empathy piece really comes in because this is empathy is required in order for me to read the audience, read the person I'm communicating with, with, even watching how they're reacting to what I'm saying or doing is part of it. And then the third piece is responding appropriately and choosing a response sort of mindfully understanding that audience or the situation instead of just taking a one size fits all approach with everybody. And I think, sorry, go ahead. No, empathy is just one of the foundations of EQ. They're all important and they have to work in conjunction with each other too. So I can't just be really empathetic and still do the one size fits all. Correct. I can't say, well, I do care about you, but I'm still going to do what I want anyway, or we're still going to do it my way. Um, there is a balance between assertiveness and empathy that we have to be aware of. Assertiveness is, you know, speaking our truth, um, telling people what, what we need to say, like sometimes saying no when we need to, um, or giving people feedback, but it has to be balanced with empathy, too much assertiveness. And it looks like I'm just doing my own thing. I'm on my own agenda, no matter what the impact is on the people around me, too much empathy could actually hurt us too, because it could be someone who has a hard time delegating because they don't want to put a lot of work on someone else, or they have a hard time giving honest feedback because they don't want to hurt someone's feelings. So we need both. We need assertiveness and empathy and a healthy balance in order to demonstrate emotional intelligence. And I think that's a really common trap that a lot of managers fall into in, in two parts of one of 
listening to others, but then not taking that feedback into consideration when they're thinking of the next step. And so in some sense, it could be, uh, I'm just really talking to you to check that off the box, but I'm still going to do the solution mm -hmm. that I came up with beforehand, uh, yes. because that's a solution that I've already convinced myself is going to work. Yes. And the second part that you said, and I relate to this so much is the the delegation piece, because I will, I find myself not giving work to other people that I know that they should do because I know that they're probably not going to like it. Mm -hmm. It's either really boring or, you know, <laughs> nobody really wants to do it. But then I spend, you know, more of my time, which one could argue, you know, if I'm at a higher salary or a different position, costs right. the organization more to do that. That's right. Exactly. And so I think we feel bad and it's sometimes well-intended, right? It's like, I know you're busy already. I know you're stressed out already. I want to be a good leader. I want you to stay engaged. So I'll just do it. You know, it's one little thing. Well, very soon all those things start piling up and we have people who aren't delegating appropriately for good reason, but bad outcomes. And I think when it comes to feedback too, I was working with a leader one time and they, the culture where they worked was very, positive, you know, and very uplifting and very encouraging. But a leader said to me one time, you know, we're being so nice, but we're not being very kind because we're not giving people the feedback that they need to hear in order to do their job successfully. We're kind of looking the other way to keep everybody happy, but it's turning out people, the jobs outgrowing some of our employees and they're not finding out until it's too late. And that might be nice, because we don't have a lot of conflict, but it's not very kind. And I think there's a lot to be said about the role of conflict within organizations, right? It's, yes. it's good to have a healthy amount of, of conflict there. And I think that that comes along from this, what you just said, uh, being able to provide that feedback in a really positive way to help employees who were responsible for growing and developing to help them really truly kind of grow and develop. Mm -hmm. And you, you mentioned something similar in an article that I read on your blog where you talked about um, one of the quotes from that is, you know, that we grow by learning and using empathy to understand and respect the viewpoints of others. Mm -hmm. And that tied in for me when I started thinking about kind of ego trap one, uh, feedback that you don't like. And so avoiding people or kind of removing people from the process because I don't either like their their process for thinking or how they look at the, the problem that I'm trying to solve. Or maybe I had a bad experience one point and I didn't like the feedback that I got. So I just stopped going to them for advice. Mm -hmm. But what is, what would you say to managers who, you know, either find themselves in that trap of excluding other people who don't think, mm -hmm. and in most cases, when they, when people don't think alike, it's because, you know, they either don't have the same background or the same opinions. Um, and how can I push myself to really hear other points of view? Yeah, you're right. And another ego trap is surrounding yourself with more of you. And it's kind of in the same vein where, um, you know, we get along great. If we're all very similar, we get along great. We think alike. Decisions are made quickly. Um, so why wouldn't I want that as a leader? Well, because groupthink can happen. And pretty soon we don't have any diversity of thought. We don't have any diversity of approach. We don't have diversity of experience or background. So it's super important. And, and it's a challenge I understand because every organization has a culture and it's tempting to want to interview new hires for fit, right? We want 
people to fit in our culture. We want them to get along with their coworkers and be successful in the role and, and jive with the culture of the company. But um, unfortunately, a lot of times um, that means that we're, we are hiring a certain type and pretty soon that can create problems for the organization and a lack of diversity. And so we need to get better at conflict. We have to get better at having a naysayer on the team or the person who's challenging or questioning. And you might have to go seek it out because if you don't have it really around you, if you start to notice that meetings are happening really quick, decisions are getting made, no one is raising their hand because everyone's so afraid to either speak up or they think alike, you might have to actually go seek out that different person who thinks differently, who isn't afraid to challenge you, who isn't afraid to say, yeah, but what about this? And instead of labeling that person as not a team player or, you know, the, the negative Nelly, as it were, instead recognize they're playing a really important role. And there's a, a company that I've talked with recently. And one of the things that they do at, at every meeting that they have, and I absolutely love it, is they will appoint someone to kind of be the devil's advocate in the meeting mm -hmm. and really to just sit there and kind of poke holes in, mm -hmm. you know, the argument that somebody is making, even if they agree with it. And I, and yes. I just love that point of view and, and that approach because it really kind of one, it would encourage me to come to the meeting more prepared to defend the ideas that I have, you know, to really yes. kind of do the research and make sure that this is well thought out. But then you might actually think of something better throughout that yes. process. And yes. you said something that is kind of a sticking point for me and something that um, I know people who, you know, interact with me on a daily basis hear me uh, talk about, which is the cultural fit. Uh -huh. You know, hiring people that we get along with, that we like, um, and sometimes I'll sit in on interviews and they'll say, oh, wow, that was a fantastic interview. Absolutely love this person. And I'm like, yeah, but that sounded more like happy hour than an interview. Mm -hmm. You know, you talked about their, their dog and their favorite movie. And you talked about, mm -hmm. you know, where they went to college and, you know, the people that you know in common, but you never once asked them how they make decisions or how they plan for success or what happens when failure happens mm -hmm. and how do they recover from that? And so you know, we, we talk a lot about hiring for organizational fit, but I think that the thing that companies get wrong is we sometimes don't know how to evaluate what that fit might be and what do we really need. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. And, think, and we want to hire diversity for sure, but we also want to ensure they have the emotional intelligence to go with the diversity. So when they are questioning or challenging the thought or the culture, they're doing it in a way that is appropriate. Right. So they've got the diplomacy they need. They've got the ability to negotiate that way. The conflict is actually healthy conflict and it's improving the outcome instead of them being seen again as, you know, the difficult one because they're they the messenger is getting lost with the message. And so it's critical that we have both that when we interview, we do a thorough evaluation of that candidate on how have they, like you said, how in the past have they handled a failure and how did they, when did they get feedback that surprised them that they weren't expecting and what happened and what did they do about it? And how did they manage stress during difficult times or, or lots of deadlines being thrown at them? Um, those are really vital job skills that we need to evaluate in our candidates. 
and then say, okay, if they can handle those things and they give us answers that we're happy with, the rest we can teach. You know, if I, I, can, I can train emotional intelligence. So we can develop that in employees. But if I have the option to hire it, I will take that option all day long. And what do you say to, to people? Because I hear this sometimes where someone will say, you know, I'm just not in a position to give my true feedback. But when I'm, when I'm the director or when I'm the VP or when I'm the senior VP, then I'll be in that position to really tell people what I think and what I feel and, and give them kind of that true sense. Is yeah. there a right time in someone's <laughs> career to do that? Well, I hear it also like when someone's brand new to a company, like I have to just kind of toe the line until I figure out what's what here. And so I yeah. need to keep my mouth shut. And, and I totally get there is something to that, but I think it has to start with where we are. I, I heard a really good quote that the ultimate form of empathy is listening to others without judgment. And I thought it is so it is so true, but it is also so difficult to do <laughs> because we do judge, right? It's, it's human nature. We judge what we're hearing. We're asking ourselves, is this real? Is this an overreaction? Would I feel that way in that situation? So um, one, I think wherever you are in the organization, being able to role model true empathy, because I can influence others once I understand the way they think, once I understand what someone else values, I have a better shot at selling my idea to them because I can connect it back to something that they care about. So if I'm trying to influence my boss to do something different, if I do it in a way that says, hey, boss, I know that you care about, let's say, profit, okay? And that's your primary motivation here. I can now connect my idea to how it's going to help my boss be more profitable, and I will have a much better shot at influencing them than if I just say, hey, I've got an idea, the way you're doing it is wrong, and I have the right way because we used to do it like this at my old company. Yeah, most people roll their eyes and go, okay, well, we'll put it under consideration. So you have to almost make a business case to someone else, and you can absolutely influence up. You don't have to wait until you're the senior leader to do that. And I think that that's where a lot of people, myself included, and in current times and in my past, we don't build that business case uh, mm -hmm. to, to really kind of influence and win people over. And I think that that preparation is key. It really helps you sell ideas and uh, build credibility within the company. It does. And like you said, if you've already looked at the negatives too, if you in your own mind have been an angel's advocate and a devil's advocate, you can even bring to the person you're trying to sell your idea to, hey, I've looked at the other side of this and I understand and I validate that there are some risks and here are the ones I've identified. So I'm not looking at this one sided. I see both sides of this, but I still think it's a good idea. You're going to have, again, a much better shot at influencing that person to go along than if you only appear to have one side, you know, figured out. Right. Absolutely. And I think understanding too, like I, I know for a fact that I am much more risk tolerant than other people in our organization. So mm -hmm. when I'm, you know, kind of gung ho moving forward, you know, ready to change the way we've always done things, you know, recognizing those people along the way who I've just completely bypassed and are sitting there with their eyes wide open thinking, oh my gosh, what's happening? And, and how do I, how do we slow it down a little bit? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Everyone's at their, in their own place. And again, that's why the empathy part is so important because I've got to understand why this person might be very emotionally connected to this old way of doing it. 
And until I understand that, I won't be able to really overcome resistance to the new way. Um, so it, it does require a little more upfront homework, but I find that once you've done that, and it's, I guess, like in any sales role, you close faster, if you will. Once, once you've got the business case sorted out and you have meaningful connections for this person between what they want and the new way, you'll have a much better um, time implementing and executing on the change. Absolutely. I love that. And I think thinking of it in terms of selling ideas, selling and influencing ideas is critical mm -hmm. because people don't, um, people don't think like that sometimes. I think in, you know, sometimes what I, I talk about with individuals is, you know, persuading or telling, you know, do you have kind of this telling style mm -hmm. of here's the direction we're going or, you know, are you really trying to influence people to, to come alongside you and go with you? Mm -hmm. Or is it, this is the direction we're going, everybody get on board or get out of the way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there's times, you know, I think that's the other kind of art and science of emotional intelligence is I can't really tell you, well, all the time you need to be selling and never be in the mode of this is where we're going, get out of the way, because every situation is going to be a little bit different. So there, there will be times, especially under, you know, crisis or stressful situations where we might need a leader who says, okay, I'm, I'm in charge right now and this is what we're doing. Um, but afterward, being able to go back and then say, okay, let me explain to you why I did what I did. And then the next decision may be more collaborative and less authoritative, but every situation is going to require a different response. So having that mindfulness to read the situation, read the room, read the audience, and then know which way do I need to approach this is the key. Yeah. And like you said, going back and, and realizing that in management, it's not a one size fits all approach. Not at all. No. So. Uh, I wish that it were sometimes it'd be make life I know, a lot wouldn't easier. It? <laughs> <laughs> sure would. You just go to business school and learn this is the way you do it. And we could all just become experts at it in a matter of time. That's absolutely right. <laughs> so, you know, I, I love talking about this and I think that, you know, obviously I've made, you know, a career or started a career in helping people be better people leaders and really connect with their employees. And no matter how many employee surveys we do, no matter who conducts those surveys, whether it's Great Place to Work or Gallup or any of those folks, uh, we hear consistently that, you know, it doesn't matter about the perks or all of these other factors. What employees want is this personal connection with their direct supervisor. And yes, they want the CEO to be a really great upstanding person mm -hmm. uh, and they want to have confidence in the organization. But at the end of the day, what really matters, at least what I've heard from a lot of people is I want to know that my direct supervisor has a personal interest in me, in my mm -hmm. career development, in my growth. Um, and so I talk a lot with people and one of the caveats that I find myself saying is, you know, I know that um, this works in kind of my perfect world of, you know, how I think that things should be. And what I hear from people sometimes is, Anthony, that sounds really great, but this is the real world and, you know, that's not going to work sometimes. And I don't agree with that. And, and so we have those conversations. But what would you say to people who say, you know, this is all really great and in a perfect world, we'd be able to sit down and really listen to each other without judgment. Um, is that possible for people to do? And, and how do we how do we make that uh, real world and perfect world a little bit more succinct? I hear what you're saying. And I think um, it's a generational uh, trend that we're also seeing where the younger generation cares a lot more about a leader who knows who they are, who is vested in their success and their experience and uh, career progression. 
than the older generations are. So this is here to stay. I really don't see this being a temporary uh, condition that we're facing as organizations or leaders. So we have to pay attention to it. And again, I think the business case is where we have to always go back to. How can we make the business case for empathy or kindness? I found a really interesting study. I don't know if you've if you've run across it in your work, um, but it's uh, it's the title of the study is "What's Love Got to Do with It: The Influence of a Culture of Compassionate Love in the Long-Term Care Setting." And this was a longitudinal study done. It was published in the Harvard Business Review. And they surveyed um, employees in a large nonprofit long-term care facility in the Northeast. And um, they looked, they studied over 16 months, used multiple people, um, patients, um, patient family members, employees. And uh, what they found is employees who felt that they were working in a loving, caring culture reported higher levels of satisfaction and teamwork. And here's the business case. They showed up to work more often. And you know, in a care setting, ratios of staff to residents is critical, right? So having them show up more meant less overtime for other coworkers or having to bring in temporary staff. But they also said, that it affected the patient outcomes or the resident outcomes resulting in improved patient mood, improved quality of life, satisfaction, and fewer trips to the ER. That's phenomenal. Yeah, and I mean, so you put a dollar value on all those things, right? And then they expanded the study and decided to go outside the industries and they studied over 3,200 employees in seven industries and found the exact same results. People who worked in a culture where they felt free to express affection, tenderness, caring, and compassion were more satisfied in their jobs, committed to the organization, and accountable for their performance. I think that's incredible. I'm going to have to go back and read that. That yes. article will have to include it in the notes for this episode. Yes, I'll absolutely share the link. It's it's a really, I thought, compelling example of a business case for this. So we can say that it doesn't matter, but we've seen evidence that it does. Well, and I think particularly in long-term care, but I would imagine this, you know, like you said, this plays out in other industries as well. When mm -hmm. employees feel like they don't have to check half of who they are at the door, you know, if right. they're having a rough day or, you know, particularly in long-term care, one of the things that I hear from employees quite a bit, and I experienced this myself when I worked in the community setting, was when you had residents who would pass away and mm -hmm. um, the impact that that has and still still having to, you know, have to constantly confront death uh, in a community setting and mm -hmm. but not being able to really kind of share in the grief process. Um, and there are a lot of uh, people, particularly individuals who are new to senior living uh, or new to long-term care, who don't quite know how to process that. And when I talk to them and when I, and particularly when they leave the organization, they will say, I just didn't know how to handle the grief. And we never talked about it. It was just a normal part of the day-to-day -day business. And that's not true in every case, but for the most part it was, you know, it became part of the process. Mm -hmm. uh, now this, now we're moving out, we're moving somebody else in, and, you know, and, and life kind of goes on, but in a lot of cases it doesn't. Mm -hmm. um, but the, the ability to have staff show up, provide really exceptional care, 
just like any business, having employees show up and be really engaged with the consumer, I think mm -hmm. is critical. And like you said, it uh, leads to, you know, more profits, better reputation, all of the things that I would imagine is probably on every business's, you know, organizational plan at this moment, um, increasing that customer loyalty and mm -hmm. really just as an opportunity to kind of expand, you know, or improve the outcomes that they have. So. For sure. And, and, you know, I think it's also one of those things like, um, because of the world we're living in with so much social media, communication, word of mouth being so powerful, um, you know, you don't want to get a reputation for being a brutal place to work. The culture's terrible. People hate it there. Even if they stay, it's almost worse if they stay and they tough it out, but they tell all their friends, I have the worst job in the world. I work for the worst company in the world because it gets around, right? It gets out. So um, it's really important that, you know, when it comes to kind of company branding and reputation out there, it's more important than ever, I think. Yeah. So what I'm hearing you say from that is it's absolutely possible to, to be an empathetic leader, to apply these principles in day-to-day -day decision making and connection, connections with your employees, regardless of what your industry is. Yes, exactly. It is. And, and you can be empathetic without being a pushover. And well, that actually, that's perfect because that tied into a question I wanted to talk. You mentioned earlier about accountability. Mm -hmm. and and where a lot of managers myself included go wrong of we know that an employee isn't meeting x standard but mm -hmm. it's not serious enough for me to take formal disciplinary action but eventually it's going to impact their you know career opportunity it's going to impact service within the organization um or you know what i get what i hear a lot from different people is i just there's something about that person i just don't like <laughs> um, and, but I haven't addressed it yet, or we haven't coached that. So is there room to be a manager or a leader who holds someone accountable, but do that in a way where that person can still feel valued? Yes. I was coaching an executive one time and her style was very supportive, very high empathy, very hands-on. If the, if an employee came to her with a challenge, her, response was almost always, let me go work with you. Let me go with you side by side and help you through this. Let me practice a couple of things with you and show you. And, you know, again, super hands-on. And of course, what that had resulted in is it's really hard to hold someone else accountable to something when you are too deeply involved in the solution, right? When your fingerprints are all over it and it doesn't work well, they're just going to come back and say, well, I just did what you told me to, or I just followed your instructions. So now I can't hold them accountable because uh, I'm in the middle of it. So we were working with her on how to pull herself out of that cycle. And so when employees came to her, she started changing her response instead of saying, oh, let me come with you and show you how to do that. Or let me help help you. She would say, well, what have you tried? What are the obstacles? What do you think you should do? and walk them through their own problem solving and then kind of send them on their way that they were going to go solve the problem and let me know how it goes. Well, then she started hearing complaints and a few people brought up to her, gosh, you used to be so supportive and now it feels like you're not, like you're just kind of leaving us out there to hang in a way. And she's like, well, now what do I do with that? Because it's not working what, what I wanted to 
my intended way of responding to this isn't working. And I said, okay, so a lot of this is also languaging, right? So I'm going to sit with you. You're going to bring a problem to me and I'm going to sit with you and help you brainstorm options. And then at the end, I told her what you need to say is, I firmly believe you are capable of doing this on your own. And I'm going to be supporting your empowerment. I'm supporting your growth and your development by encouraging you to solve this problem on your own. And I said, by labeling the independence you're giving them as a way to support and develop them, it changes it from off you go, good luck, let me know how it goes to I'm here, but I'm not going to get in the middle of it anymore because I believe in you. And that changed everything for her. And she actually got promoted about six months later. That's fantastic. I, so I have a very similar, or I, I think I probably still have that very similar style of, you know, let me get in there, work mm -hmm. with you. And uh, partially because I really love the work itself. Mm -hmm. And I think that this is probably pretty common for a lot of individuals who move from like an individual contributor role to more of a director or a VP level. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I, I that my uh, supervisor and my mentor told me about a year ago, and, and she said, usually what happens when you go into support, that turns into a form of micromanagement. Mm -hmm. uh, not that you're going in that with the intention of, I don't trust this person, let me do this for them. It's mm -hmm. that you're taking away any ability that they have to problem solve there. And, and so I love the, the way that you rephrase that or, or helped her to rephrase that. Mm -hmm. Another question that has been really helpful for me to ask people is, you know, what tools or resources do you need to solve this problem and helping yes. them understand, you know, what, how, how do we get you, if you don't have access to these tools and resources, how do we do that? Um, or do you maybe even not know that they exist within the organization? Um, and that has been a really powerful tool to help people just think through, you know, well, what, what does that support look like for me? Cause I'm going to be here rooting you on Right. And, you know, really kind of just opening that door, that access for you to have, you know, what you need to solve the problem. Right. Because you might have the ability to move obstacles for them that they don't have the ability to do. And that to me is huge support. But the goal needs to be that we're encouraging everyone to do their own critical thinking. Mm -hmm. And when we jump in there, even well intended, we sort of take that away and they let us do some of the heavy lifting a lot of times. Well, and the magical thing that happens when you do that for people is you can go on vacation. You can leave yeah. the office and and the business will go on without you. And yes. I think that that's such a freeing feeling for people. And, and I tell that to managers all the time of if you can get your team to this state, yes. you can turn your you can turn your phone off. You can yes. go to your son's baseball game or you can go to your daughter's hockey game or whatever yes. and um, and be present with them. And that's such an amazing feeling. When I was um, way back, I've been, I'm, I'm much, much older than you, but when I was early on in management, um, we of course did not have email or cell phones or anything like that. And so on my days off, um, I would sort of make it a point because I worked in retail. So we were 24 seven, um, you know, we did not 24 seven, but seven days a week we were operating. So the days I was off, they were working. And I started to get in the habit of not answering the phone. Even if I was home, if the phone rang and I saw it was coming from work, I wouldn't answer it and let them leave a message. And I learned that most of the time they solve their own problem. If, you know, 
if a couple hours later they called me back, I would definitely pick up the phone and jump in. But I tried really hard to not be too available because I found the quick, easy thing is call Jen and ask her what we should do. And when they can't get a hold of you, they're forced to do their own problem solving. And that was a really healthy activity. And over time, they stopped calling because they started to figure out they could work through it on their own. So it, it's not, but it's painful. It's very difficult because, you know, you feel bad for them and you want to help them out. And it takes a lot of EQ on the leader's part because you have to have the self-control to not jump in or give them the answers too quickly. Well, and letting go of that ego. I mean, I love yeah. being the person to fix problems. I love being, you know, yes. Anthony really saved the day there. But um, I think it's a better mark of any leader to say, my team did this, or this person on my team really rose to the occasion, and I didn't need to be involved to yes. do that. Yes. Um, but it also gives you this really great opportunity to do kind of reflective coaching and ask them, well, you know, how did you go through and solve that problem? If, you, if that problem happened again, what would you do differently? Mm -hmm. And those are really great opportunities for people to, to think back and say, okay, well, yeah, I would have, you know, maybe not freaked out so much, or I wouldn't have um, you know, skipped over this critical piece of the problem. Uh, absolutely. And I think you're right. Not only does it help us with accountability if things go wrong, but it also helps us with recognition if things go right, because then they know they've really earned that recognition. You can, you can reward them for the good decision they made and the outcomes, and they know, and you know, that they did that only totally on their own. And that has different meaning for someone than somebody who just executed on a task that they were told what to do or how to do it. Yep, absolutely. I, I, I love that so much. Um, and I hope more people get the opportunity to, you know, go on vacations and do things and not have to have that, that feeling. I still sometimes struggle with the guilt sometimes, but it's mm -hmm. good to, to get away. Um, well, Jen, I really appreciate your, your contributions and your thoughts here. Uh, I've always just been a avid follower and consumer of everything that you put out. So I think that a lot of our listeners are going to benefit greatly from your wisdom. And for the record, I would not say that you are much older than I am, probably <laughs> much cooler than I am in a lot of ways. So, oh, uh, boy. I, but I, before I let you go, I do want to ask you um, if you could share a book recommendation with our listeners other than um, your books, which I absolutely recommend people to read. Um, <laughs> And I will definitely uh, link to those in the show notes, but I, I'm sure you have a book or two or a resource in general that um, our listeners could benefit from. Well, gosh, there are a lot of books um, that are some of my favorites. I am a big Stephen Covey fan, and um, he had a bestseller a long time ago called The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. I feel like it is such a solid staple for any employee in any role in any industry to have the foundations. A lot of it is a lot about emotional intelligence in there. So that is one I always recommend. If you haven't read it, I would absolutely pick that up. And I think even now they've got like video sections of it and it's on Audible. And so there's there's lots of ways to get to Stephen Covey's work. Um, but his his stuff to me is is so wonderful. And then um, there's also a great book on um, introversion versus extroversion called Quiet by Susan Cain. That's also one of my favorites, and I recommend that one quite a bit as well. Perfect. I'll have to check that one out. We There's a particular interest of mine on, um, in a few studies that I've been reading that talks about 
how extroverts get promoted more often than introverts, but mm-hmm. introverts are typically the type of leaders that most organizations need. Yes. Um, not, not to exclude any of my fellow extroverts, but we definitely don't want to overlook um, those quiet, skillful, skillful leaders. Exactly. Yeah. Not, that is a lot of her book is um, the examples. She has some some case studies in there of leaders that were highly successful, but introverted. And the subtext of it is quiet, the world um, or the power of introverts in a world that can't stop talking. And as an extrovert myself, it gave me really, really good insight into the introvert mindset and what I can do to be more adaptable to those different than me. So it's also a great book on kind of diversity of an inclusion around different thoughts and approaches and, and one major component, which is personality type differences. Yep. I have uh, on my team, Emily, who is absolutely phenomenal. She and I are complete opposites and she's the introvert to my extrovert. And mm-hmm. I think we are probably just a phenomenal and dynamic team together, if I say so myself. Um, <laughs> so I would encourage every introvert to find an extrovert and vice versa. I agree. Um, so. Uh, Well, thanks so much for sharing that. And thanks again, Jen, for your time today. You bet. It was a pleasure to be with you, Anthony. It was fantastic to reconnect with Jen today. And I encourage you to connect with Jen Shirkani on LinkedIn and follow her on social media. Before we end today, I have a few requests to make as a new podcaster starting this journey. If you enjoyed today's episode, please share this with a friend or a colleague. This is how we grow, and I'm so grateful when you take a moment to share our work with others. I hope that you'll follow along on social media as we take this journey to LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. I think we can all agree that those are places that could definitely benefit from some kindness and empathy right now. We share fantastic resources on those pages in addition to new podcast episodes, so you're bound to learn something that you will find useful in the workplace. And last, if you know someone that you think would be a great guest to have on this podcast, please email me at anthony at humankindpodcast.io and let me know. We're always engaging with professionals from a diverse background and skill set who can contribute their unique views on the topic of kindness and empathy in business. I look forward to hearing your feedback and I appreciate you listening to Humankind Podcast for Leaders. Until next time, thanks so much for joining us.